Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Game of Thrones, The Reign of David. This series looks at the reign of David in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles to learn from David's victories and failures to see how we can walk more closely with Jesus. Today's uh, text, we're actually going to be looking at 2 Samuel 15 through 18. So I have quite a task. Uh, I'm going to be covering four chapters uh, of Scripture. Uh, I am not going to begin by reading all four chapters to us. Uh, I'm just going to read 2 Samuel 15, 1 to 15 to kind of lay in, and then I'll, I'll hit the highlights and talk us through 2 Samuel 15 to 18. And actually next week, we're gonna, or in two weeks, we're going to come back and do 2 Samuel 15 through 20, kind of looking at it from David's perspective. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Absalom the rebel. Absalom the rebel, so this uh, rather famous uh, event in the life of King David when his son led a rebellion against him. So we're going to look again at 2 Samuel 15. You can follow along in your booklets. Uh, these 15 verses are printed in there. They'll also be up here on the screen. And then as I move through, and I'm going to be quoting other uh, passages here, they'll be on the screen as well very often, so you can follow along. So 2 Samuel chapter 15. Hear now the word of the Sovereign Lord. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? And he would answer, Your servant's from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed to judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They'd been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithopel the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us 
and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. Recently, a friend had given me a, uh, it was kind of a biography, but it was a little unusual. It was called Bitter Brew, and it was the story of the Anheuser-Busch company and the Bush family dynasty, their rise and their fall. And it was a really interesting book to go through and read about uh, for several reasons, one of which was you learn very much in the book that becoming the biggest and best known and most successful in the world rarely has anything to do with quality and what you're actually doing, which explained how Anheuser-Busch could become the most popular beer company in the world and have the most awful product in the world. Um, But another major component that was very sad to watch was across the generations, the sons would be in bad relationship with their father. Very often the fathers had multiple wives, and the son that was going to be taking over the company was often from the first wife and had little to no relationship, and what they had was oftentimes bad with their father. At certain times, it even erupted where the son would do a hostile takeover of the company from his father, and then the father would be angry, and there would be all of this backbiting and struggle going on. And this continued on until actually in a hostile takeover, they were bought out by the InBev Corporation uh, and things had really pretty much gotten in a very bad, dire state at that point. Now I bring this story up, it was, this was Anheuser-Busch, which is one of the largest corporations in the world, but we could actually pick many corporations, many organizations, many families where the same thing has happened. It's happened in kingdoms in the ancient world right down to our modern times where a son turns against his father. And this is what we see going on here in this portion of David's life. David has been promised that a son was going to be raised up who would succeed David on the throne and was going to lead Israel. Well, now we have a son of David who has previously killed the original one that seemed to be the heir apparent when Absalom had killed Amnon. Now Absalom is actually just trying to seize the throne. So why did Absalom rebel? What was going on and what can we learn from it? So let's dive in and look at Absalom's rebellion. The first part I'm going to move very quickly through the actual story to kind of lay out what goes on in 2 Samuel 15 through 18. Now if you notice right at the beginning, Absalom's laying the groundwork for rebellion. He doesn't just one day rebel, he's kind of getting things prepared. It begins with him beginning to act in a kingly fashion to draw attention to himself. Notice in the first two verses we're told that he's getting a chariot, he's riding out, he's got 50 men uh, riding in front of him. He's got this whole entourage and it makes him look impressive and important. Everyone is paying attention to Absalom. And notice he's out at the road that comes into the gate. So as people from every tribe in Israel are coming into Jerusalem, they're all passing by Absalom as they're making their way to King David. And he's out there and he's asking them where they're from. He's showing attention to them. All of these are things that a king in the ancient Near East would do. So Absalom is kind of telegraphing his intention and stating to people, David's the king now, but you need to start thinking of me in those terms. I'm going to be the one coming next. But Absalom goes a step further. He not only does this, he begins to undermine David directly. 
Notice in verses 3 and 4, Absalom tells the people who are coming to David for justice, and he says, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And then in verse 4 he says, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. But the reality is everyone had someone they could go to to do this in Israel. It was David. That was what David did. If you remember in our story, both Nathan the prophet and the wise woman from Tekoa had come to David and presented stories and said, Here's an injustice happening. What does the thing king thinks should happen and in both cases David had pronounced justice correctly to his own surprise he pronounced justice against himself because they were just stories but it shows that David was doing this but Absalom's trying to get the people to say something's wrong with the way this is happening yes you're going to David but I don't think you're getting real justice and if only I were there I would make sure everyone would get Justice. He's taking the side of the plaintiff. He's implying that the king is not available and not responsive. And he's putting himself forward and saying, I'm the solution to the problem you didn't know you had until I told you there was a problem. So this is what Absalom's doing. And then notice in verses 5 and 6, he's purposefully trying to reach out and steal the people's affections. Whenever the people come and they're doing it, he's the king's son. He's got this huge entourage. He's a man of power. So they do what people in the ancient Near East did. They got down and they started to bow down on the ground. And Absalom would run down and pick them up. And he would kiss them and he'd say, oh, no, 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 we're all the same. And Absalom's doing this, which is very contrary to how he actually is. We're going to see in a few minutes, Absalom doesn't care about the people. At all. He doesn't mind if in his rebellion many of them suffer and die. That's not Absalom's concern. But at this point, he wants the people's affections. So he shows false humility, which goes against Absalom's basic nature. And the text says he steals the hearts of the men of Israel. Between all of these actions, they're starting to think, you know, we kind of like David. David did do all of this stuff, but look what Absalom's doing. Now, the reality is Absalom hasn't actually done anything. He hasn't provided justice for anybody. The only noteworthy act that Absalom has ever taken at this point is taking vigilante justice and killing his brother. That's what Absalom has done to this point in his life. But he's stealing the affections of the people. So what happens then is, after Absalom does this, we read in verse 7 that Absalom springs a rebellion. And notice here, at the end of four years. So note, there's four years of Absalom doing this. On top of two years that he's been back in Jerusalem, on top of three years that he was gone in exile, on top of two years prior to that where he was plotting the murder of Amnon. This has all been going on for 11 years. Absalom's being very patient. And he's working, and he's laid this groundwork. But he comes to his dad, and he acts very submissive. And he says, O king, I, I made this vow, and I need to go down to Hebron to fulfill my vow, and so would you give me permission to go? And David says, certainly, Absalom, you can go. Uh, and remember, Hebron's the former capital. So Absalom's picking and choosing his place carefully. Hebron is not real happy that Jerusalem's now the capital. They've been kind of eclipsed, so Absalom's going to go down there 
where there's probably already a little unrest, and he's going to do something there. He's probably got a stronger base there, thinks it's going to give him uh, motivation for the rebellion. And then he secretly sends messengers who are all part of this plot throughout Israel because, you know, remember, we don't have like the internet like today, so you can't kind of announce everything on the web at once. He's using old technology. He's got people around, and he tells them at a certain time, trumpets are going to sound, and when it happens, you tell everybody that Absalom is king, and he's king back in Hebron, the way things used to be. And he invites 200 important men from Jerusalem to go down with him. They have no idea what's going on. They think the king's son, the likely heir, is throwing a big feast down in Hebron, and they're going to go down there with him. Little do they know that in the middle of the feast, trumpets sound, people jump up and say, Absalom's the king, and they're all in a very difficult place all of a sudden because you're there, and you may be as loyal as you can be to David, but if you say something right now, your lifespan is probably going to be very short from that point forward. But Absalom has kind of tricked him into this, and then he does one other thing, which is the wisest of David's counselors is a man named Ahithopel, who is actually, it appears, Bathsheba's grandfather, who may still have something against David, he invites him to come down and join in on the rebellion. And Ahithopel does. And he is considered the wisest man in all of Israel. He's considered the guy to have. So all of this makes it appear Absalom is is cresting into power. Everything is turned. This is an irresistible force. Now, David's back in Jerusalem, and as we've seen in these chapters, ever since the event with Bathsheba, David, remember, has been indecisive. He did nothing in the incident with Amnon and Tamar. David did not respond at all. You remember last week I showed in 2 Samuel 14, the entire chapter, David's name is never used. And early on in this chapter, his name is not used, it's just the king, because David's just a shell of himself. And David has somehow missed that this rebellion was happening right under his nose. But in verse 13, we're told that a messenger comes and tells David, here's what's happened. The hearts of the men of Israel have been stolen away from you, and they are all with Absalom. David, you are in big trouble. And so he hears that everybody's following, and so David finally is decisive. The old David finally is wakened and he shows back up and he doesn't sit around doing nothing. Remember for two years he couldn't decide what to do about Amnon. For three years he couldn't decide what to do about Absalom. And then for two more years he left him downhill. That indecisive David is gone. He hears this has happened and he immediately says, we got to get up and we got to get out of Jerusalem. And we got to get out of here because if we don't, Absalom's going to show up because apparently the whole country's on his side. And what will end up happening is they'll kill us, but also they'll put the entire city of Jerusalem to the sword. They're going to kill all the people. I can't take that risk for me, for the people who are loyal to me, nor for the city of Jerusalem. we got to get out of Dodge, and we got to get out of Dodge quick. Now what happens at this point in the narrative, if you follow how the historian, how God is speaking through the author to tell us this story, everything appears as bad as it could be through the first 14 verses. But then suddenly in verse 15, we find out, well, David's closest associates all stick by his side. They say, whatever you think, David, we're with you. We're going to follow you. We are not with Absalom. 
And in fact, as David travels, and we're not going to take the time to look at the verses, but you see as he heads out a series of people who keep coming to David and saying, we are with you, we're going to follow you, we'll go with you into exile, we'll do whatever, we are still with you, David. So David starts to realize, well, maybe it's not quite as bad as the first report made it sound like. It sounded like it was me against Israel but maybe there are still people who are loyal and faithful to me. They are not following Absalom. But David is forced to flee, and he ends up getting outside the city and going away, so Absalom is free to come into Jerusalem. And the next thing that happens in the text is Absalom cements the rebellion. So Ahithophel tells Absalom, listen, when you get back to Jerusalem, here's what you need to do. You need to pitch some tents out on the rooftop of the palace, Take whatever wives or concubines David's left behind. Take them into the tent so all Israel sees what you're doing and everybody's going to know there's no coming back from this rebellion. You've slept with your father's wives. There'll be no turning back from the rebellion. And this was actually what was done in the ancient Near East quite often. That's how one proclaimed I'm the new king. If you've ever watched like a National Geographic special, you know when, when a new male lion takes over the pride, he kills all the young cubs, he mates with all the lionesses, and that's his announcement that I'm the new king of the pride. Well, they had a form of this basically in the ancient Near East. This is what would happen. So Absalom's told to do it, and he actually does do it. He listens to Ahithophel, he follows his advice, and it's saying, the rebellion is cemented. This is a done deal. But then Ahithophel tells Absalom, okay, you've done that. Now here's what you need to do. You need to raise an army quick, and you need to track David down, and you need to get him while he's on the run. He's at his weakest right now. You cannot wait. And what you can do is you can grab David. You can kill David, kill nobody else in the army hardly. You won't have to, no blood's going to have to be shed, and you'll be the king. But David, one of the people he met when he was leaving was a man named Hiram. And he speaks to, I mean Hushai, excuse me, Hushai. Uh, he sent Hushai back as a spy. And Hushai says, listen, everybody knows how wise Ahithophel is, but this time his advice is not good. Rather than getting after David right now, you need to remember, Absalom, you're not really a warrior. David's a warrior. David's surrounded by his men. They're not going to leave him in an exposed place. You're going to have to get a massive army from all of Israel, and you're going to have to go down there, and you're not going to be able to get just David. You're going to have to kill a lot of people. You're going to have to be willing to shed a lot of blood, and you're going to have to crush him with overwhelming force. And so he's got two competing pieces of advice, and it's important to see one of them, only David dies. The other one, a lot of people die. Absalom listens and talks to his friends, and they say, you should go with Hushai's plan. Notice in verse 14, uh, in 2 Samuel 17, 14, Absalom and all the men say, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Hushai's advice is bad, but Absalom listens to it. And we're told, right in the text, the writer tells us, this is because Yahweh's at work, and he is at work to rescue David and to destroy the rebel Absalom. Now, Ahithophel, the wise man, watches this, 
and realizes the rebellion's done. If we wait to raise an army, David's going to pick the ground, David's going to pick the fight, and he is going to win. It is all over. So Ahithophel puts his affairs in order and goes off and kills himself and says, there's no way to recover, and David's not going to forgive me for having sided with Absalom in this rebellion, and Absalom's too foolish to realize the rebellion is already over. We're just going to play out the inevitable here. So he gives up. Well, in the text, Ahithophel is right. He's wise to the end. The battle after three chapters of description, you go through 15, 16, and 17, in the early parts of 18, the actual description of the battle is very, very short. Because in one day, the battle happens and the rebellion is crushed. In verses 6 to 8, we read that the army marched out in the field to fight Israel. This is David's army. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. Now why this is important is Absalom's got more troops. But David's troops are far more experienced They've got most of the generals. They pick the place for the battle to happen where it's kind of like the old Spartan battle at Thermopylae where well, you may have more troops, but we're fighting in a place that your numbers don't help you. So they lure Absalom's army into battle, and Joab, David's leader, crushes Absalom's army. And in a single day, the, uh, the battle is over, and there's 20,000 men who are casualties. And notice in verse 8, of 2 Samuel 18, it says, The battle spread out of the whole countryside, and the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. Now, there's a statement going on here in military battles sometimes, like in the, in the Civil War, uh, the battles down in the wilderness, down in Virginia as it was called, the same kind of thing happened actually. There was a lot of casualties actually from the terrain itself in the battle. Well, that's what's going on here. But don't miss what the author's saying. He's not just using hyperbole. He's telling you, just like the Lord had intervened and made Absalom take bad advice, it's like nature itself is fighting against Absalom and his forces. It's like the armies, it's something out of Lord of the Rings, you know, that, that the trees are fighting against Absalom's armies because, in fact, Yahweh is against Absalom. And so his army is crushed, um, and they lose the battle. And the conclusion then is, well, what's going to happen with Absalom? And in verse 9 we read, Absalom happened to meet David's men, and he's not a great warrior. So what he immediately does is he turns, he ducks tail, and he runs. And we're told he was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's head got caught up in the tree, he was left hanging in midair, the, the literal phrase is, between heaven and earth, while the mule he was riding kept going. Now, it actually says his head was caught. Most people believe that it was actually his hair that's caught up, and I'll talk about this in a couple of minutes. Absalom loved his hair. He, he was into his hair. And so it appears that the very thing he took as his glory is his own downfall. But don't miss again, just like the forest claimed more lives, this is a supernatural event that's going on here. Again, it's the point. you got to picture Absalom the rebel is on the mule, which is what kings rode. He's riding away. His, his very thing of, of pride is captured up in a tree. He's left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule is gone. He's laying there completely exposed, no protection, until Joab comes and thrusts spears into him, and the young rebel dies. And that is the end of Absalom. 
Now, picture with that picturesque thing ripped from his mount, his very source of pride being his undoing, and he dies in an ignoble way, you can understand why King David, when he hears about it, goes into the cry, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom. Because this is a sad tale. You have a young man who is David's son. We're told he's the best-looking man in all of Israel. He is a charismatic leader able to sway people. He is decisive. He had all of this going for him. And he was even the heir apparent. And it all ends with him stripped off of a mule, hanging in midair until a guy comes and thrusts a sword and I mean a, a spear into his side. That is a sad end. But make no mistake, God wants us to understand that is the end of rebellion. It's what it does for us. Now the question that I want us to consider for a few minutes is, how did Absalom get this way? If he had all of that and all he had to do was wait for the kingdom to be handed, why does he become a rebel? Well, there are multiple ingredients that kind of build the, the cup, uh, the potion of Absalom's rebellion. The first ingredient that's going into this is actually David's own sin. I won't dwell on this a lot, but you remember in 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan the prophet had spoken to David, he told him, because of what you've done, here's what's going to be the outflow. In verses 11 and 12, he said, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household that was going to bring forth Messiah, now I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. That's exactly what happened with Absalom. It had been prophesied this was going to happen to Absalom. His rebellion was from David's own house. It was a calamity, included lying with David's wives in broad daylight because it was exactly what David had done with Bathsheba. And we are reminded again in the text, the fruits of David's sin continue to unfold around him. And this is a hard lesson, but innocent people are always affected by sin. Our culture tells us your sin is private. It's nobody else's business. That is never true. David did his sin in private. And then people have been dying ever since 2 Samuel 11 in his story. And it continues now. Bathsheba suffered. Uriah suffered. Other soldiers who died with Uriah suffered. Tamar suffered. Absol I mean, Amnon was then put to death. Absalom is put to death. Other soldiers around Absalom are put to death. And all of it's flowing out of David's sin. Sin is never contained. It always expands, and it always spreads misery and suffering beyond anything we originally thought that it was going to do. David did not think when he sent for Bathsheba that it was going to end up with this. But when you choose to sin with Bathsheba, you end up crying, Absalom, my Absalom. Now the other part was, you remember, David sinned by not disciplining his children. He did nothing to Amnon for raping his sister. He did nothing to Absalom for taking vigilante justice against his brother. There's not a single word of rebuke or instruction from David to his sons. And the lack of parenting allowed sin to harden in Absalom's heart. 
Now, before you think, well, poor Absalom, then he had no choice in all this, that's not true. Because here's the reality. In this sin-soaked, fallen world, the effects of other people's sin always reverberate in our own lives. You are affected by the sin of other people. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. It's been that way since Adam. There is no sin that's cordoned off, and there is no spiritual Switzerland that you're not affected by the, the wages of sin, the war that's going on all around you. You are affected, just like Absalom was. But here's the question. I can be like Absalom, and I can let that sin then drive me into my own rebellion and other sin, or I can take this back to God. It is not a question. Other people's sin will affect you, and it will affect me. As long as you are in this world, that is the truth, and there is no getting away from it. The question is, what will I do with the effects of those sin? Absalom let it stew. Absalom let it stew. It's 11 years. 11 years from Tamar. And the picture is the whole time. It's just working on Absalom. It's getting in there until it breaks out in rebellion, and that rebellion is the death of Absalom. So the first ingredient in rebellion is always someone else's sin. Hard as that may sound, but it affects every one of us. There are injustices in this life, always. Question is, how do we handle those injustices? Second ingredient, Absalom's own pride. 2 Samuel 14, before we actually come to our text in, second, in chapter 15, we read this in verses 25 and 26. And all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair from time to time when it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Absalom was physically flawless, and he knew it. Everybody told him how handsome he was. And his incredible hair became a source of pride. And I feel for Absalom because I struggle with the same thing. When you got a head of hair like I got, it's just a source of stumbling sometimes, right? I mean, when I cut my hair, the weight of it is so high. Absalom, unlike me, does not look in the mirror and see graying, thinning hair that has nothing to do. Absalom's looks great. But the problem is it becomes a source of pride for him. He's caught up in it. And pride is one of the deepest root vices. It feeds virtually every other sin, including rebellion. If pride grows in your heart, you are going to rebel. You are going to become a rebel. You are going to not believe in any authority that God would institute. Pride leads me to believe that the rules that apply to others don't apply to me. And that it enables me to unjustify ungodly actions in myself or my friends and allies. It doesn't really matter what I do or what they do because we're kind of above everybody else. And make no mistake, I may be out there at the gate saying, oh, no, 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 friend, stand up. Stand up. 
and be just as proud and arrogant as it could possibly be. Because all I'm doing actually is using you. And so pride makes me justify my own evil, wicked behavior. But note, pride goes before destruction, and very often the source of our own pride becomes our downfall. This is why Josephus was the first guy to point it out and say, but look, when it says his head got caught, it's probably his hair. The very thing he took pride in becomes the very thing that brings him down. How often have you seen this? Somebody is good-looking like Absalom is, that good looks gets them in trouble. Somebody is very smooth with their words, and then suddenly the, their words become a noose that hang them. Somebody is very powerful. They've got power and privilege, and then they abuse that power and privilege, and it puts them to death. It happens over and over and over again. And so the only way we can neutralize that, the only way that this can be Uh, broken out for us is that the law and the gospel promote humility as we see our own sin and we see our need for God's grace and forgiveness. See, it's impossible for me to become proud and think that I'm better than everyone else when I let the law of God speak to me and remind me who I really am. See, when I read this text, we should not come away and say, I'm just poor David. Very often you and I are Absalom. And when I read the Gospels, I see the same yeast and leaven at work in the Pharisees at work in my own heart. I find myself very often being not the hero of the story, but the one who's in trouble. Because that's what God's Word does. But here's the good news in that. If we will let that work in us, then it will work humility in our hearts, and we will remember, there but by the grace of God go I. And I am not better than everyone else, and the same rules and laws do apply to me. There is not a special exemption in God's law for me and my sin. You and I need the antidote of humility sown into our hearts. I won't go any further into this, but if you remember back Uh, In Lent time frame this year, we went through the root vices. We went through those seven root vices, and pride was one of them. And I talked a lot in there about antidotes and ways to work against pride. But suffice it to say, friend, if you don't believe pride is at work in your heart, you are deceived. It may not be the same thing. My hair, not my source of pride. But it doesn't mean that I'm exempt from the same exact thing that lurked in Absalom's heart. Next, is Absalom's lust for power. Absalom's lust for power. You've got the sin of others that was in his life, his own pride, and then his lust for power. Now, this is actually the whole Absalom story, starting at chapter 13 and going all the way through his death in chapter 18. But based on his actions, there are a lot of biblical scholars who think Absalom may have set up the Amnon-Tamar incident. Because He wanted to be the king, but Amnon was the heir. And so he's got to get some reason to get rid of Amnon. And he figured if Amnon does this, David will deal with him. But then David doesn't deal with him, and so then Absalom has to take it into his own hands. Absalom clearly is craving power. He is extremely calculating in his actions to undermine any rivals and to take power to himself. And if you doubt this, consider this. Who does God say is the greatest king who ever ruled over Israel? David. And yet Absalom, for four years, stands out at the gate telling everybody, David's not cutting it. He's not good enough. 
you need somebody like me because David's not good enough. And he's saying this of the very king that God, for the next hundreds of years, is going to say, this guy was good, but he's not as good as David. Absalom's not even satisfied with David's leadership, and he can't even wait for the reins to be handed over to him because he is discontent, he is unwilling to wait, and there is a raw lust for power in Absalom. And make no mistake, the raw lust for power leads to ungodly actions, and oftentimes with the excuse that good will be done in the end. But the ends do not justify the means. Ever. It does, they do not justify it. But what people do, nobody stands up and says, I want to do this because I have a raw lust for power. We explain, here's the good that's going to happen out of this. This thing, I'm not just after power. I want what's good for the people. And if we get this, then I'm going to get it. Ahithophel, if you notice in here, had counseled a path that only David's going to die. But Absalom doesn't care about the people. And if what will get him on the throne is to crush and shed blood across Israel, Absalom will do that. Because he's not in it for the good of the people. He's in it for himself. Notice David said, we got to get out of Jerusalem, otherwise Absalom might go near and put all kinds of people in Jerusalem to death. And better that I get out and put myself in a vulnerable place than that Absalom kill innocent people. Absalom is the exact opposite of that. When one is in the grip of a desire for power, virtually any action and any ally seems justifiable. But this is not the way of Christ and his cross. And sadly today, please hear me, I am moving out of Absalom and David's time. I'm fast-forwarding to 3,000 years, and I am speaking about the church in America. The church in America, very many Christians are willing to justify virtually any sin in themselves or in their allies as long as they gain power. And the reason is because we're going to do good in the end. So we will justify this. But this is not the way of Christ and His cross. The way of Christ and the way of the church and the way of the gospel is the way of the cross, friends. It's not the way of the dragon. It's not the way of greed and power. It's the way of suffering. Now, I'm not getting a lot of amens right now because if you understand it, you ought not be just hollering amen. It's not easy, but it is what we in the church want to do. And then the church makes things. I, I'm not going to mention the name, but I want you to know, when, when it came out that our president had slept with a porn star and then paid money to do it, a prominent evangelical leader said, and I quote, we're going to have to give him a mulligan on this one. Friend, that is not the Bible that we give them a mulligan. Now, I'm not saying that because the same thing has happened on the other side. I expect people whose hope is this life to act that way. They don't have anything else. All they have is raw power. We don't live that way. We don't act that way. And if we do, if we start justifying the means of sin to get to the end of power, know that we are acting in rebellion. We are being Absalom, not David. 
not David. We're going to see in a couple of weeks, David's response is exactly the opposite. Friends, the, the antidote to this is we do not trust in temporal power, but in God. The psalm says some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but our hope is in the name of the Lord our God. They are juxtaposed against one another. And we know that the ends do not justify the means. We trust God. We walk in righteousness no matter the short-term cost. We simply don't justify sin because, well, we got to do it. This is our side. Our side is righteousness. Our side is God's law and God's gospel. Our side is the kingdom of God. That's our side. You do that, you are going to be as non-worldly as is imaginable in our culture right now. Everybody else will lie and cheat and steal and do anything to get their guy in power to get their thing done. We dare not do that, friends, on any side, on any side. And if people are rising to temporal power in our context, very, very, very often, you're going to have to be Nathan. And even if it's your guy, you have to be willing to stand up and say, you are the man. And you will be cut off from the access to power when you do that. Access to temporal power. But thankfully, you'll keep your access to God <laughs> and his power, which is what we need to do. Last point. Absalom's desire for a legacy is a key ingredient in his rebellion as well. We're told even after his death in verse 18 of chapter 18, during his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. Can I tell you that's a bad phrase? I erected something as a monument to myself. We're already in bad trouble when we do that, okay? He's erected as a monument to himself because he thought, I have no son to carry on my, the memory of my name. So he named the pillar after himself and it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. So he's, in his pride, he's making a monument to himself, but notice he's doing it because he's saying, I want to be remembered. I want a legacy that goes on after me and I don't have a child. And I want you to know the desire for legacy has been the ruin of many leaders from King Saul to King Henry VIII, to our own day. More blood has been shed over guys trying to figure out how they're going to keep their legacy going than almost anything else you can imagine. And Absalom's got no son, and so maybe the Davidic covenant's going to have to be passed down to another. And Absalom's response to that ought to be like Jonathan's was when God said it was going to be David, not Saul's line. And you remember Jonathan said, hey, that's fine. But see, Absalom's not fine with that. No, no, no. It's got to be me. It's got to be my way, and I've got to have the legacy. An unwillingness to accept God's call and God's limitations for myself is rich soil for rebellion against God and envy towards those whose call I desire. But, friends, here's a truth for you and me. Hear, hear the gospel. Your legacy and my legacy is not in this world. It's on the final day when God says, well done, good and successful one who grabbed the reins of power. Right? No. Well done, good and 
faithful. Friend, you're going to be judged on faithfulness, not worldly success. Not worldly success. This culture doesn't want to tell us, but that's what we need to be living for. So note here as we go into applying the word, I'm going to put these up on the thing, um, that there, there are the four sins. David's sin that caused Absalom's thing, his pride, his lust for power, and his desire for legacy. That's the ingredients. And what I want you to understand, any one of those leads to rebellion. But when you mix those four things together, improper response to someone else's sin that's hurt me, my own pride, my lust to be in power, and then my desire for legacy after me, if you mix that together, if you combine those, it's the formula for the deadly poison of full-blown rebellion that leaves nothing but death in its wake. You put those four together, you got poison on your hands. And there's virtually no way to undo it. And that's what Absalom found going on in his own heart. So how do we apply the word? Briefly, and we'll come to the table. First question, do I display the effects of rebellion in my life? Do I display the effects of rebellion? Am I willing to sacrifice truth to accomplish my desired ends? And please don't just say no to these questions. Am I willing to curb the truth, shade it, make it a little different, just put it in a way because I've got to get this thing done? Because if I'm willing to do that, friends, that's a desire I'm acting in the spirit of Absalom the rebel. Am I willing to minimize or justify sin in myself or in others? to accomplish my desired ends. I've watched more often, again, in the church, where, well, yes, the church leader did this thing, but for the good of the church and for the good of the gospel, we got to cover this up. Is that ever for the good of the church and the good of the gospel? It's not. It's not. Justifying my sin is not the way of Christ. Owning up to my sin is the way of Christ. Am I more concerned about temporal power and results or obeying God's word? We're praying for the persecuted church all month this month. Why are they being persecuted? (laughs) Because they obey God's word and temporal power is trying to crush them. There's an easy out. Just compromise. But see, the church has not done that from the very beginning. And we dare not compromise the Word of God for the sake of temporal power. Whenever we do that, it is a death knell for the church. It is a death knell for the cause of the gospel. Another way, I'm just keeping asking this question about am I displaying the effects of rebellion. Am I more concerned about temporal power and results or the eternal kingdom of God, and the salvation of my enemies. And I'm using air quotes around enemies because according to Ephesians 6, who's the only enemy you've got? The devil and his forces. Is the person who disagrees with you and who's going to vote differently than you do when we have an election next month your enemy? No, they are not. I don't care which side of the aisle you are on. They are not your enemy. 
And what I'm supposed to be concerned about is their salvation. You remember when Tony taught on Psalm 110 a couple of weeks ago, and in the ancient world, the kings brought justice and brought what was good for us by destroying our enemies. But thanks be to God, that is not what Christ did for us. When you and I were enemies, he brought victory by saving us. And we are to be in the spirit of Christ. Am I more concerned about winning the battle or about the salvation of that person over there? And my words will tell you which one is really my concern. Or my Facebook post, but I won't go there. Do my words and actions display a desire for getting my way? or for advancing the gospel in the lives of others. If I asked every time before I responded to someone, what would promote the cause of the gospel in this person's life, we might behave a little bit differently than we do. We might speak a little differently. We might change the way we behave. But If I'm not, if I'm doing it the other way, that's pretty much proof that the spirit of Absalom is at work in me. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put these ingredients back up here. Notice again, and we're going to get ready to come to the Lord's table. But I want you to think before we do, look at each of these and ask yourself, if you had to pick one of these four, Which one is the major ingredient you have going in your cup? Which one of these is the dominant ingredient in the potion that's working in your own heart? For some of us, it really is what other people have done to us. We are angry about that. We are bitter. That is working in us. For some people, that's not a problem at all. Pride's a problem. For some people, it's lust for power. I want my way. And for some people, it's that concern for legacy. Particularly, as we get a little bit older, we oftentimes start thinking about that. But if you had to pick one of the four, which would it be? Because what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table, this table of humility and submission. That is the opposite of our rebellion and us trying to take it. And we're going to confess whichever of those sins it is. So today I want to remind us, our path of salvation, I've been saying this is not the way of Jesus and his cross, I remind you that humility and submission of Jesus are the basis of our salvation. We are saved because David's son, Jesus, did not act like Absalom. He did not reach out and take the kingdom for himself. Rather, he humbled himself, he submitted even unto the death of the cross. And that humility, and that submission, and that being the opposite of Absalom is why you and I are saved. That's what we come and base it on. So here, you and I are called to follow in the way of Jesus. One of those things is working in your life and in mine. None of us here are without sin. It's working in our hearts and lives. Which ones? So we're going to confess that to the Lord humbly. We're going to do an antidote to pride right now and to all four of those. And we're going to humbly confess before the Lord our own sin. 
knowing that our God is kind and gracious because Jesus has done that for us. Now, I want to remind everyone here that you are welcome to come to the table as long as you are a believer. What that means is you have to be doing exactly what we're saying right now. You are not the source of your own salvation. You and I are the source of our own damnation. We are our greatest enemy. And if we believe that, and we believe our only hope of salvation is our Lord Jesus and His grace and what He's done for us, then we invite you to come to the table. As always, there will be uh, an option for gluten-free. If you need that, if you just raise your hands, uh, we will uh, offer that to you in just a moment. So, And as we distribute the elements, please take the time to consider uh, which areas we are confessing to our God. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we approach this table of humility and submission today, a table that reminds us of the humility and submission of Jesus. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you would work the same in our hearts. Father, expose our sin and then forgive it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we distribute the elements, uh, please take time to consider before the Lord and to ask Him to forgive and to cleanse, and then we will take it together in just a couple moments. Sovereign God, You are the King of the universe, ruling all things with wisdom and righteousness. But like Absalom, we have rebelled against your rule, acting out of folly and evil. But we thank you that another son of David, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, took our flesh and acted with humility and submission. He never once rebelled in thought, word, or deed, but fully submitted to you and embraced your rule. So in humility we confess our sins and his righteousness. And we forsake our rebellion and embrace Jesus as Savior and rightful Lord. Forgive our sins for his sake. Take and eat. Lord, since the time when Cain murdered Abel, we have been people of violence, willing to sacrifice others in our own quest for power. Like Absalom, we have attempted to make a name and legacy for ourselves, but have only succeeded in bringing ruin upon ourselves and others. But our Lord Jesus refused the path of ruthless power, preferring 
the way of the cross to the way of ruthless domination and the kingdom of heaven to the temporal kingdoms of this world. And so he has made a name and a legacy not only for himself, but for us as well. For through his blood, we have been made your true sons and daughters with full inheritance rights. Therefore, O Lord, we give you thanks for the blood of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, who has secured our place in your kingdom forever. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, through word and table, we have seen our sin and rebellion and forsaken them. Now empower us to go forth, not as rebels, but as obedient children, embracing the will and the way of God with our mind and our heart. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus, the true Son of David, our righteous King and Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll conclude with a word of benediction. And I encourage you to receive God's blessing uh, that the Apostle Paul spoke by the Holy Spirit for God's power to sanctify us that we might not be Absalom, but be more like Jesus. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Go forth in the peace of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.